You know, when you get old in life, things get taken from If you love something, if you have a strong passion for something. Life as we experience it, it's a big act, and the player is you. is like reclaim an alignment with that inner process in you and build what your soul is asking you to build and trust that it's a part of the mosaic of the face of the God that's trying to come through the earth that will help us, you know, eventually get to the point where we can see what the fuck humanity actually is. What up, fam? Welcome to another episode of Life Beyond the Game. Hope you're having a great summer. Hope you're all your dreams are coming true. Hope you're finding stillness and the ability to stay grounded through all the shifts that are taking place maybe in your own life and definitely what's happening collectively. I feel like the world's moving such a rapid pace and uh, yeah, so many things changing. I don't know if you guys have followed any of this AI stuff. I think even by the time this episode goes live, it's going to be even crazier. Make sure you're paying attention to that stuff because it is going to be massively disruptive to our entire reality and world and uh, also potential to, to really support us and help us in a wide variety of ways. Uh, it's one of the reasons I'm really excited about getting out and uh, more connected to our, our land, our property, Haven. Uh, we're going to be doing retreats out there and some permaculture, regenerative farming. Uh, I want to mention that because that's where a lot of my energy and focus is going to be going. And if you want to follow along on the journey and stay connected to what we're doing out there, uh, there'll be a link in the show notes for the Haven Telegram channel. Uh, it's our community. It's free. Great way to stay connected. So check that out. Yeah, today's guest is a powerhouse of a human. And uh, I've been trying to get him on the show for, it's a busy man, busy man, involved in a lot of different things. And uh, his name is Eric Godsey, and he he is a dear, dear friend, an ally, a brother. Uh, I met him first when uh, I joined Fit for Service in 2019, uh, Aubrey Marcus's um, community. He's one of the coaches, and um, it's it's been so cool to see how much he's grown, uh, how much I've grown from that initial experience, well, four years ago now, five years ago, holy cow. Um, man. It's cool. It's it's why I'm so passionate about community because that community and being a part of individuals who are like-minded, who are heart-centered, and who are really passionate about pursuing ways to change the world. Um, yeah, it changed my life in, in every way possible. And it's why I am so passionate about building community myself. Eric is a philosopher, a Jungian psychologist, he is a mythologist. He is an incredible storyteller. He is so many things. He's one of the most intelligent men I've ever met. And really, really, this conversation was powerful. And at times, it was a little bit overwhelming. We covered a lot of ground. And uh, Godzi's ability to tell stories and to anchor it into... Um, myth and symbolism and uh, 
to really talk about the gravity of the situation we're in collectively um, left me feeling both daunted or overwhelmed by the daunting task ahead and also inspired by the ability for humanity to love, to be of service, and to have hope for a more beautiful world. Godzi's doing incredible work. And uh, yeah, I, I think I'm just going to let y'all jump into it and uh, excited to share this conversation with all of you. It was very potent, very powerful. And uh, I hope you guys get as much out of it as I did. And yeah, if somebody comes to mind while you're listening to this show and, and, and you feel called uh, that they would be inspired by the story shared, go ahead and share the episode with them. It's a great way to support. Another great way is to leave a review, uh, say some nice things, and don't forget to follow, subscribe, and all of that cool stuff to stay connected to what I'm doing and uh, the conversation I'm having. I really hope they're impacting you guys' lives as much as they're impacting mine. I've really enjoyed this show and uh, given these, uh, these episodes to all of you. Deeply, deeply appreciate that. And yeah, I think this episode's going to go live. We still have time. Uh, I'm running a wilderness expedition retreat, whitewater rafting, four days, three nights in Utah, down the Green River, class three and four rapids, incredible humans. And there's still, maybe still some spots left, depending on probably, maybe there's not spots left. But if you feel in your heart that you want to connect with nature, connect with yourself, connect with other incredible humans, and have a ton of fun doing it, this is one of the most incredible experiences. Definitely the most incredible experience I lead, but the, but like not even something that I create or, or lead. It's It's one of the most incredible experiences I've ever been a part of. And I've lived a, a lot of life, you know, I lived in my van, I've done all the different healing experiences. I've gone down to Peru on pilgrimages and traveled the world. And I've done all the retreats, summits, self-development, uh, healing, men's work, group work, yoga festivals, all the things. And they're all unique and powerful and beautiful in their own way. But nothing touches the, <laughs> I can feel it in my body right now. Yeah, take a moment to to check in with your heart. Just imagine yourself deeply immersed in a canyon going down the river, which is such a metaphor for life, going with the flow, feeling nurtured and supported and cared for by, by Mother Nature, letting go of all the distractions of your daily life, all of the weight of all the things that you are being called to create, all the busyness and yeah, just all the distractions. Imagine setting those to the side for just a few days and imagine the internal peace, expansion, love, remembering. Imagine the conversations had when there's no cell phone service, being able to be deeply present with those that you're on this expedition with. Yeah, breathe into that. And if it's something that you really are curious about, check it out. I'd love to hear from you. Reach out to me directly. 
it's truly a magical experience, especially if you've if you if you're an adventurous adventurous soul. It's 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 incredible. If you're somebody who desires to be more adventurous and wants to get out in nature on a multi-day expedition, it's not it's not as challenging as you'd think. It, it, there's a there's some fear to the unknown, and I've experienced that. It's part of the magic of the trip. But you know, if you go onto the website, there's a link in the show notes. There's some some uh, testimonials of people who've come on the trip from the last couple of years, and it's funny. Everybody has this idea of like what it's going to be, and all of the challenges and resistance that show up, and it's just so much more incredible than you can even imagine. So I'm excited to share it with all of you. Are with. 20 of you special people and it's already at this point almost full so check it out would love to see you out in the river love you all so much and holy cow buckle up for this episode with my good friend and brother eric godsey oh well that that was a a lot of pretext here to get to to now we're here we're in it we're here now how you doing Really good. That breath work was perfect and uh, also perfectly challenging in that I don't do it. And I know that if I just gave it a minute, a day, two minutes, it would be beneficial. So I appreciate the invitation to breath work. That was good. Absolutely. It's so funny. When I first started podcasting a few years ago, I was like, I want to take just three breaths with my guests before we drop in. And it's fascinating how much resistance I had and judgment of like, what's this person going to think if we breathe together? Right. And there's just, just three breaths. And now it's like, I know that it regulates the nervous system. It brings us into resonance and it just drops everything into the, into the present moment. And yeah, so much growth in that. Cause like, it's just, it's just breathing. I think yeah. like the world would be a better place if we all just learned to breathe. Yeah. There's something specifically challenging about breath work for me because anyone who's done it uh, all out for an hour plus, they know that it can take them to the exact same place as like 400 micrograms of LSD. And we can get there with our breath. And I can go a year and not do it once. You know, like where I consciously try to take hold of my breath and this will probably be a theme of something that we'll get into on the podcast today but like have you read the war of art by stephen pressfield i have there is a universal force of resistance that's like part of the fabric of the universe to resist anything that's trying to grow or transform and it's not evil, it's not bad. It's actually required for the growth to happen. But I think it's uh, hilariously evident when it comes to breath work because it's here, yeah. it's available, it's free every day. And it can change your state of mind more powerful than any of the things that we seek to do with our hands or with our mouth through eating and most drugs. Yeah, oh, really fascinating. Oh man, I think we should start... Because, you know, I, I know you have uh, had, a, had a dream. And I think speaking about resistance and, and kind of your initial, what you wanted your life to be like and your vision with, with basketball yeah. uh, at a young age and, and that being taken away from you. Um, take us, let's start there. 
take us through that that dream and that that initial ego death of what you had a vision for your life to be and kind of what it led you down because I think it's a really fascinating place to start. Yeah. Uh, once upon a time, there was a little boy that was born into a culture that uh, didn't really have any values. And the only dreams in that culture that kind of came through, if you grew up, you know, lower middle class uh, in, you know, the heart of America, it was uh, go to college, get married, buy a house you cannot afford, have children, and then become your parents in 40 years. But if you're paying attention to your parents now, they're deeply unhappy. Or be a professional athlete or some type of, you know, actor, musician, or rock star. Uh, option A was never attractive to me and didn't know how to play music and didn't know how to act. But I figured out probably seventh grade that I was abnormally tall. And that um, I could put the ball through the hoop. And long story short, basketball through seventh grade. So I started in seventh grade. That's when you first picked up a basketball? Or yeah. That's when you started competing? Yeah. That's yeah. when I started. That's when I started knowing that you could do anything with the ball. You know, like I would, I had bounced a basketball before, but I'd never done anything that could be called playing basketball. And I started coming off of the bench on the B team at middle school that I went to. And by the end of the year, I was starting on the um, team, like on the AAU team. And I was like leading in points and rebounds. And so I was like, there's something going. There's a here, here. And then um, I moved to Texas because I was in Wisconsin at the time and no hate to Wisconsin, but uh, not a lot of athletes. And when I came to Texas, I uh, moved to a town of like 180,000 people that was like right in the core of the state. It was actually Fort Hood. A lot of people won't know what that is, but uh, I became the only white person everywhere I went and everyone was a fucking athlete. And so I got really good playing against that type of competition. And when I was a sophomore, uh, I was playing in this, like, I was playing in a AAU game inside of a church. Like, it was one of those old school churches that had a basketball court in the church. And I had a really good game. And um, a scout from TCU, uh, Texas Christian University or whatever, uh, but it's a D1 school, um, basically like told me that he was interested and that uh, he was looking forward to seeing me play next year. And the vibe was like, you know, because they can't legally offer a scholarship at least then until you're at least a junior. Um, I remember that day because that was the day where I was like, oh my God, I can go to college for this, you know, because if not for this option, I'm not going to college. There's no option. My family can't produce that. Um, the year after that, my junior year, I was just balling out at the top of my skill. Um, and I was an asshole. I was 
not quiet about being better than most of the people that I was around. What did that look like? You're just talking shit to people um, or just like the way you held yourself? Uh, I have a mouth. Uh. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, I would never talk shit while I played, but my air, the other 23 hours of the day was, I'm smarter than you. I'm better than you. I think you're stupid. And I'm going to let you know through my jokes, you know? And so I got punched in the face quite a few times. Literally or just? Literally. <laughs> literally. <laughs> literally. Um, was it some of the other boys that just in high school that just yeah. didn't have it? You were, so you were in people's faces. Yeah. So um, I was six foot in seventh grade. And I was told by doctors, I was told, me and my mom were told by many doctors that I would be 6'8". And so, like, I, I really thought NBA, like, even if I'm just coming off of the bench, I'm going to make it to the NBA. Like, I'm going to be 6'8". I can move. I can shoot. How tall are you now? Fucking 6'2". <laughs> so, Fuck. I don't know what happened, but um, I try not to think too much about it, but I cracked my tailbone when I was a sophomore. And like, from what I understand, the doctors saw the length of the growth plates and they were like, I had only had one growth spurt and it happened when I was in like fifth grade. Yeah. At least again, what I was told is you should get at least two. And that because of the size of my growth plates, it was looking like I would get like four to five more inches. I don't know what happened, you know? And like still to this day, it's this like, like, I don't know what happened. But anyways, my so That's where your year, deep trust, distrust for the medical system started? <laughs> probably. That's hilarious. I've never thought about that. That's hilarious. That might be. Um, my junior year, uh, um, a teammate that came off of the bench uh, ran up behind me during a scrimmage where I was basically like, I would get the rebound. I would run the fast break. I was scoring on layups and I was just like... Uh, not winning well was my attitude on the court. And a teammate came up behind me and fouled me like incredibly hard with like a behind the back, like wind up, like, like the type of shit that would get you a flagrant to, you know, college. Um, and it just tore my shoulder out of the socket. And he made a joke afterwards that was like, um, it felt like the truth is, um, he was incredibly stupid. And I don't mean that judgmentally. I mean, like objectively struggled in school, kind of had a, almost like a constant concussion type vibe to him. He was a big country kid. And he made a joke that felt like, um, he was trying to hurt me, but also like, it just, it was overwhelming, like just how, like, felt like an eight-year-old, you know. It was crushing. And uh, did not have anyone in my family or around me who knew anything about rehab or nutrition or anything. And so um, I just waited until I could play again. And then I would try to play, and my shit would just dislocate all the time. And for people who haven't had dislocation, it, shoulders it's arguably one of the most painful type of things that can happen to the body or at least that's how it's you know described 
And I, I probably dislocated my shoulder three more times and subluxed it, which is where it just slips out and slips back in like 19 times in the next year. And then finally, when I was a senior, after being like um, nationally ranked, like I have the newspaper article where even with this injury, I was like being scouted. I got surgery. And I knew that once I got surgery, it was the end of my basketball life because I was a senior. The recovery time for a rotator cuff tear is like at least nine to 10 months. And that's with people who know what the fuck they're doing. I don't know shit. And because this was 2008, after I got my surgery, I got prescribed a ridiculous amount of Oxycontin. And I didn't know anything about Oxycontin. And... It's a longer story, but when the surgery happened, I lived alone as an 18 year old in high school, as a senior, um, I got to live alone in a house in a state where my parents lived in some other state. And so I was just alone. Were you down there like uh, as like a recruit for the high school to play ball? Specifically? Basically. Yeah. Yeah. So it's cool that you know that type of dynamic, but um, like the way things played out, I had my own house. And people might think that, you know, like that's really cool for a senior in high school and the parts of it were cool. But once I started taking Oxycontin inside of a house with no furniture, you know, because I didn't have money for furniture, I just fucking had a house and a TV and a fucking like a mattress, mattress on the exactly. floor. Fuck. Exactly. Like we that's had depressing. Three. It was tough. <laughs> and um, because I didn't understand anything about Oxycontin, which if you guys watch something like the documentary Dope Sick, you start to get like, I dodged a bullet. The fact that I'm alive, I got incredibly lucky during this period of my life. But I got to the point where I would skip breakfast. I would take an extra, like I would take two oxys in the morning. I would drive to school as fast as I could so that by the time I got to school, the oxy would hit. And then I was a fucking zombie in school for the next eight months. I went to prom in a sling and you can tell that I'm fucking high. Like I was just fucking out of there. Once I ran out of Oxycontin because I, you know, I got a fucking 10, like a 10 month prescription or like a six month prescription. This is back before people started to crack down on Oxycontin. And yeah, they wouldn't do that making, anymore. Right, and doctors yeah. were making money. Yeah. Um, when I ran out, I didn't understand anything about withdrawals. And I just kind of stumbled from a depression and disassociation into a addiction to food. And for the first time in my life, I got fat. I gained 40 pounds of fat over the course of probably about four months because I guess I was trying to like stimulate the opioid response through the food. And I was just eating like a fucking animal. I remember like I took a photo of myself um, after I graduated high school. And it was like with my shirt off and I was just fucking, uh, I couldn't recognize myself. What was your emotional landscape like during this time? It's so hard to even accept how numb and disconnected I was then. Because even then, I couldn't even comprehend or even like 
I couldn't hold the concept of what depression would even mean. Like, that's how far away I was from who I am now. Like, I couldn't even discern that my inner landscape, I wouldn't even know what depressed felt like. Um, Were you aware at the time that your career was over through this whole process? Was that an aspect I was in denial. Like, like, so you still thought, I'm going to heal from this and go play in college? No. Like, what I was thinking was, I'm getting high today. Oh, it just it came to the singular Bra, focus. Right. It was next hit. It was just fucking... Sh- wow. And some of my memories from that time period of like, I remember there was this girl that I was attracted to in high school who was like one of the hottest girls in the entire school. Somehow through when I was sick or when I was like healing and my arm was in the sling and I was taking these meds every day somehow. And I think maybe because I had that Oxycontin courage to fucking just start (laughs) to send some texts. But somehow she ended up at my house. The two of us are on the couch. It's late and we're watching a movie and it's, it's the type of movie that you stop watching to have sex with each other. And I could feel that I didn't care that there was nothing in me that could get my hand to move because I could, I just could not like, I was just fucking high and numbed out and, Oxycontin is somewhere on the order of magnitude of two times as potent as heroin per amount. And uh, that stands out as like a year ago. That moment would have been, I would have been engulfed in a flame of passion, either anxiety for not making the move or making the move and just fucking, you know, just exploding into a meteor, you know? Somehow I stumble into college. So my mom, when I was a freshman, ended up going and uh, doing a tour in Afghanistan during the war. And so when she came back, she had the GI Bill, which allowed her or a dependent to go to school for eight semesters. And so when I graduated high school, my mom offered her GI Bill to me, which was incredibly um, gracious of her. You know, because she hadn't gone to college yet. She could have gone and got a fucking degree. And I, through sheer luck, I stumbled into the local private Baptist university. And uh, I'm not religious. Or I wasn't then. I I was as anti-religious as one could be and not be violent, basically. And I love how I said long story short and then I tell this long story, but we got two and a half hours. We got two and a half hours, man. Yeah. Um, I didn't want to, before you did, you didn't have sex with the girl. No. Just wanted closure on that. Yeah. No, I didn't even make a move on her and I could feel. And you didn't care. It wasn't like, because I I know the same thing. Like a high school kid is like, this is the time, this is the time. uh," And then I've had those moments where I didn't ask the girl to dance and like I just was so destroyed for a long time afterwards. Either way you care, right? You didn't feel any of that. What I felt was like, I felt pathetic that I didn't care. It wasn't like I regret not making the move because there wasn't the urge, but I could feel that it got to a point in the movie where I could feel she started to feel like confused. And like, it kind of makes my stomach sick now because I'm more connected to every part of me. And I could like, it's, it's really humbling as an older man to look back on some of the situations that you were in as a teenager and just be like, man, he didn't get it. 
he just didn't get it. Missed opportunities. Yeah. And so, no, I did not sleep with her. Um, in college, I started to get my shit together. Um, a congregation of a couple of things came together, but the big thing was I discovered podcasts. It's, I think it's hard for people to imagine, but in 2009, most people didn't know what a podcast was. How did you stumble upon podcasting and what was the thing that, did you have an awareness of like, well, I need to like figure this out, clean this up? No. Um, well, actually, so um, this is kind of a cool story, but it makes the story longer. But I think that this is an important part. So um, after my first year of college, um, I had slowly started to get my weight under control because I started to learn the very first few things about nutrition, like, oh, sugar at the levels that we eat it in our normal American diet, very bad. And so I just started to tweak that and started to drink coffee with fucking butter in it in the morning. And I eventually lost all the fat. But by the end of my f freshman year in college, I had failed all my classes and I had stopped going to class. I just, I was fucking up, dude. And at the end of that first year, I remember the day I'd started smoking weed that year and I'd loved weed. And, uh, you know, I got high, I sat down and I watched a, um, comedy special on Netflix. It was by somebody named Joe Rogan. I didn't know who Joe Rogan was. I kind of, I was like, oh, is that the dude from Fear Factor? Yeah. Cause it was in 2009. And, um, I'm watching this stand up at night in my shitty, I'm, I'm, I'm on the grossest yellow leather couch you can imagine. And I'm watching this after having just fucking failed my entire first year of college. And uh, Joe Rogan starts to do a bit while I'm high that leads to my first spiritual moment in my life. So the bit was something along the lines of everyone in here, we think we're the smart people, but we're not the smart people. We don't know how any of this shit works. Like I'm dumb and, my, and I'm smarter than almost everyone I've ever met. But I don't know how this light works. I've been a comedian for 10 years. I don't know how this microphone works. What would you do if the lights went out right now? You would do what I would do. And you would sit here and you would wait. And if the lights didn't come back on in a minute, you'd be like, these fucking idiots can't get the lights to come back on. And then he screams, who here knows how to do any of this shit? If all, and as it's like his joke was the perfect story to pierce my arrogance that I had had my entire adult life that because I'm quick with the tongue and I can think of smart ass things to say, I used to kind of like control the classrooms in high school by like getting the teacher to engage with me in a way. And it was like, I somehow thought that that meant that I was smart. Got to college where classes were like 200 people. The, the professors didn't play that shit. And so I couldn't do that game. Do you have any specific experiences where you actually tried to do that and got kind of put in your place? Um, no, it was more like the, the largeness of the room actually created the container that stifled that type of 
interaction. Yeah, more lecture. There's not an opportunity to really engage right. even, yeah. Like I would have had to like yell across like a small auditorium. And, and people would have been like, you fucking asshole, exactly. <laughs> like right away. Yeah. yeah, it's just like, it was like the gravity of the college classroom kind of like snuffs that out. Mm -hmm. But um, I realized for the first time in my life that uh, I didn't know how to do anything useful. I didn't know anything useful. I was arrogant. And witty. Witty. And I wouldn't let people teach me. And I, and I didn't know how to work hard. Just like all of that shit just like broke through for the first time in my life. And it's like, I know how to work hard when it comes to beating people at a game that I want to be the best at. I, don't, I didn't know how to work hard when it came to being bad at something, which was like not understanding biology or having to learn every Latin name for every fucking bone in the body. Just being like, what the fuck? After that happened... I had this like epiphany moment. I was really dramatic. I'm still really dramatic, but I, the next day I shaved my head and this is back when I didn't need to shave my hair because my hairline was still normal. <laughs> and I decided to drive 36 hours in my piece of shit car from Texas up to Washington state to stay with my mom for like a month and a half during summer where I wasn't going to talk to any of my friends. I was just going to read philosophy and work out. And I fucking went there and I did it and it was incredible. And on the day before I was to drive back, um, one of my professors had exposed me to this new website called Reddit. This was back in 2009 and Reddit was a fucking gold mine back then. It was just like, I didn't know any, I, wow. I somehow found a subreddit that um, the post was, I clicked on it and it was a podcast. I'd never heard of a podcast. I was like, this is cool. And it was like a video. And the person on the left was Joe Rogan. And I was like, that's that dude from that comedy thing that like changed my life. So I was like interested. The guest was Aubrey Marcus. And it was the first time Aubrey was on Joe's podcast. And it was the time when he talked about ayahuasca. So the day before I'm set to come home, I hear these two men talking about, you know, like going and doing ayahuasca. And the ayahuasca was much less interesting than the fact that for the first time in my life, I got to resonate with adult men that I admired who loved what they did and were free to do what they loved to do as their job. And I had literally never even had that as a option. No one in the small town that I was exposed to did anything that they liked to do. I had to read the four hour work week three times to understand what an entrepreneur was. Like my brain couldn't compute. I was like, wait, anyone can just start a company and can just start to sell something? Like it wouldn't work in my brain. I had to read that book three times as a fucking adult. Like that's how far away that I was from this. So I read that or I listened to that podcast, deeply inspired. I then Google what are the best podcasts on the Joe Rogan experience. And like the top one was the Duncan Trussell. So I downloaded every episode that they had ever done up until that point. And then I drove, I drove home the next day and I listened to 36 hours of Joe Rogan and Duncan Trussell just fucking getting it. I remember what it felt like to like pull up to my home back in Texas. And it was like, I felt baptized and reborn. My sophomore year in college, 
I got my shit together so much that I ended up training with two professional basketball players who played in Europe. And they were brothers. And the older brother, no, the younger brother was the MVP of the league. So it was the best dude. I started to train with them every day for a couple of months. And that's when I got into the best basketball playing shape of my life. He told me, the dude who was the MVP, because I would play against him one-on-one every day. I never beat him. But there were a couple of days where I fucking gave him some competition. And it got to the point where he was like, dude, I can get you a job. If you play like this, I can get you a job in the league that I'm in. Do you want to? And I remember when he like asked me, I was like, like I really thought about it. And I don't remember. It's really interesting. I don't remember what the moment was, but I remember thinking like, no, like the two options are, um, stop, like drop out of school to go be a role player in a European league that no one's ever heard of and make like maybe 20,000 bucks a year for the next five years. Or let this dream finally die and go all in in school. And I chose to let the dream die, go all in in school. I ended up graduating college with a 3.7 GPA. I had to retake all the classes I failed and it was a whole story. But the truth is I still go through waves of the death pangs of that dream because like I ultimately didn't choose to give it up. It was taken from me. Like I got like attacked on the court in the game that I love. And the one thing that I want to offer to kind of like close this very long intro is that there is a type of experience that um, the human consciousness is capable of having that tends to come up in some psychedelic experiences, but it can happen completely sober. And it's the felt sense, and it's beyond words, but if people try to describe it, it's the felt sense that the glory and the beauty of what I'm experiencing in this moment is so complete that it instantaneously justifies everything that has ever happened to me because it brought me to this moment. And it's like that I've, I've had many of those moments now. And it's like, each time I have those moments, it's like, it like cleans out like all the wounds and the scars from the past. And it's just like, they slowly start to heal together a little bit more beautifully. And ultimately I could either you know, be just now about retiring from my European stint for 13 years where, you know, I made a grand total of like, you know, at my best year would probably be like 40,000 a year. I probably got someone pregnant that I don't, and I don't take care of that child, like just because of all the movement. Um, I didn't do anything of note in the league. You know, I just fucking did my job and got traded often. Or I give the life that I have now. It's like, I take the life that I have now. But it's um, it's still not completely healed because the truth is like, whenever I get on a basketball court, I have the instincts of a player that I can't express. And it's 
frustrating. Like the game that I love now is kind of this weird thing where like I have to play gears below what I can feel my instincts are if I'm going to play the game I love. You know, and it's a very frustrating thing. Yeah, how do you how do you reconcile that, right? Because I think every athlete at some point has to reconcile with that. And what I found in my own transition is transition is is always a part. It's like a lifelong journey. And yeah. I mean, is there a forgiveness of that guy? Is it is it just the the frustration of uh, a life that it could have been, or is it just? I mean, I know now looking back, like having the perspective of that all happened for me because it's leading me on this path for my my dharma, my bigger work, what I'm being called to do. But still that internal struggle of, you know, I had a lot of shame around my career. I mean, I made it and was super objectively super successful, made a ton of money, played eight years in the NFL, started 54 games, lost my starting job five different times and, and had to shift my internal dialogue and, and being to earn it back. And when I walked away, I still felt like I didn't really achieve what I could have. And so it's, it's interesting. It's like you have to have the mindset of almost never fully accomplished. I mean, even look at Tom Brady, like he won however many Super Bowls. And I'm sure there's a part of him that still feels like he didn't accomplish what he set out to. Yeah, I think like... I'm deeply grateful that it was taken from me at the period that it was taken from me uh, because it would be, it's hard for me to imagine what it would feel like to have made it to the very top, done well, and then afterwards still feel like I could have done more. Like a thing that anchors me is that like this, the arena that I'm trying to play in now is I'm trying to be an artist. And that has no peak. And so I'm, I'm, I'm playing this game for the rest of my life that doesn't have an end. Like the ending will be when I die. And hopefully I can do that with a little bit of artistic flair. That would be cool. But I think there's something about the nature of finite games have you heard of the book um finite and infinite games by james Cars? yeah incredible book and i think it's a modern day Dao Ching. i think if you can see what he's trying to grok it's like reading a modern day version of the Tao. one of the things that he talks about is like the primary distinction between finite games and infinite games a football game is a finite game Football is an infinite game. The finite game, all finite games can end. Finite games, when they end, they produce winners and losers. Finite games are contained in time. Finite games are held together by rules. Finite games produce champions. Champions is a label that comes as a result of a finite game ending. A legacy is a finite game. It's the result of many finite games played over and over again with the accumulation of stats and records and titles. The infinite game. So real quick. So the purpose of a finite game is to bring it to an end because we want to, to produce a winner and a loser so we can have history and titles and all this shit. Infinite games are played 
to continue play. The goal of the player playing the infinite game is to play it in a way so that it continues. So it's the opposite of a finite game. They're trying to keep it from ending. Because it doesn't end, it doesn't produce winners, it doesn't produce losers, it doesn't produce titles, it doesn't produce a legacy. And how you can see this in real time, like to anchor these two types of games, there's the player who gets away with cheating and is also an asshole to their teammates, but it's to win and they always win. Then there's the type of player who has won like 50% of the, of the games that they've played, like when it comes to like football, but they compete hard. They don't bitch to the refs when things are unfair. They stand up for their teammates and they're basically there to be a pro every day. The first player hurts the infinite game of football because they're so obsessed with the finite game. Player number two feeds the infinite game of football. That player inspires people who aren't playing football yet to go play football. They're inspiring children to get into the thing. So the artist's game is much more easily accessible to the infinite game that is, that is human consciousness. I think most other sports have such a primary focus on the finite game that it's hard for people to connect to the infinite game. And like the regret is because we're stuck in the finite game lens. And like the key of that book is that you want to have the dopest possible life. You want to help the most amount of people. You want to feel the most grace and the most miracles and abundance in your life. Learn how to play the infinite game. So how do we do that? I mean, some internal shift needs to take place to go from that focus on the finite game, which is, I'm guessing, self-focused as in the individual I, and then going into this more collective idea of I'm a part of something greater than myself and how do I keep that going? What kind of internal shift needs to take place for that to happen? Yeah, I think that there's a few ways. There's the hammer and there's the like, like I imagine there's the jackhammer approach and then there's the like archaeologist with like a small little fucking paintbrush or trying to move some dust out of the way. Jackhammer is 5-MEO. <laughs> yeah. Jackhammer is ayahuasca. You don't need to use a jackhammer. The archaeologist with a small paintbrush could be like, just learn to notice when the infinite game has arisen through you and has turned you into an infinite player. And you can just begin to notice where you've already done it. You can start to draw a thread in the tracks of how good those moments felt. So when was the last time that you had a conversation with a good friend that had no goal and it just ends up going until two or three o'clock in the morning and you guys only stop because you're tired? The infinite game was starting to come through you and you guys became infinite players. When was the last time that you hung out with your partner with no goal and it was just simply to continue the play of whatever it is that the two of you were doing? It's probably been a long time. And this is for everybody. Where it's easiest to see is in children. Children play for the sake of play. They're not playing a finite game where it's like, 
me versus you. And if they do, the thing to track is they're cultivating the infinite game between them if they continue to play. Like if, if, if the children play a game, it could be any game, every day with each other for a week, they're cultivating an infinite game relationship between them. So just starting to notice where that has already happened. And the thing to feel into is it instantly gives us access to our yearning to be of service to the game that has given us so much. Like, I think, I think it's going to be really hard for anyone who has given their entire life to uh, type a finite game without what they do afterwards to somehow be directed at feeding the infinite game that produced the finite game. You know, and you're doing that with this podcast as you're helping people who have moved through that arc you know like yeah. this is a way to be of service it's interesting what's coming to me is it's it's almost like this, this society this culture that we live in almost people it's all like there's a part of me that feels like the finite game because naturally if i want to change the world and be of service you know the, i think the initial thing is i, I need to make money to have money to support or be of service. And so it's almost like I'm going to play the finite game and almost get lost in it and lose sight of the infinite game. Because I know I've done that regularly and it's like this unconscious drive of this, this society. And there's some point when we're kids that we lose the, the playing just to play and it becomes, I need to fit into society. I need to f find success. I need some type of outcome to feel safe. And even myself that's on this path that understands kind of this expanded understanding is uh, there's still this, this society, this culture, this collective field that we live in that it, it rewards the finite game in such a massive way with the incentive structure of money and which leads to, to greed. And, you know, there's so many examples of people that show up to be of service to the infinite game and eventually get eroded that vision and becomes the finite and it breaks down and they get corrupted by whatever X, Y, Z reason. Yeah. Yeah. There's a few things here. One is the origin of the finite game is, uh, in our genes. You look out at nature and anything that has evolved to the point where it has to move to eat. So plants have evolved in a way where they don't have to uh, travel to eat. They're able to produce the alchemical chemistry inside of themselves that produce their food from just eating the sun. Definitely Mam these plants. <laughs> you're, looking, you're looking at these plants. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Mammals have evolved to, they have to go eat the flesh or the t either the flesh of other mammals or the fucking tissue of plants in order to feed. Mammals are in a finite game. You either eat that motherfucker or you go without food. You either run away from that motherfucker or you get killed. So it's deep in our genes. And um, what I think is, so the finite game is an existential perspective on reality. And to cultivate the infinite game lens is going to literally like transform you in a way that's not just you reading a book or hearing it on a podcast. It's going to literally change the way reality reveals itself to you. So it can be scary, you know, because it's like, it's a different way to look at everything. 
because you can find the finite threads through any, or you can find the infinite threads through any finite game. If you have the purview that is hard enough. I think our culture is the byproduct of, um, all right, so I'm going to go on a spiel here. I'm going to see if it makes sense. Um, we are living in a invisible genocide right now. And the genocide is happening in the zeitgeist. The zeitgeist is where like ideas live and space time is where our meat suits move and shit and piss and where we eat. The genocide is happening in the zeitgeist. The thing that is being killed in the zeitgeist are gods. Gods are organizing stories created by humans that grow to a place where they start to organize human behaviors at scale. So I'm going to say that again. Gods are organizing stories that humans produce that grow to a scale in the zeitgeist where they can then um, organize large groups of people. So an easy example is like the Catholic Church. That's a god. It can organize a billion people to act a certain way. As much as people hate to admit it, Walmart is a god. Amazon is a god. Apple is a god. Google is a god. I'm sorry. And is this just because they have a, a powerful collective energy behind them? Right. So what like um, Western occultists would call this is an aggregore. Um, Buddhism has a name for this too, and it's escaping me. But um, the uh, Native Americans had the word Tonkin. For the, like multiple cultures have a word for like, an animating spirit that's able to like possess people. It's stories. It's story. And companies are that too. We live in a time where the gods, like the king gods of our age are all gods who don't think they're gods. Like, so they're psychotic because they're gods who don't think that they're gods. And the, the king God, at least as I see it, I call him Moloch, M-O-L-O-C-H, which is um, a tip of the hat to uh, um, a Hananite god, I believe, who um, believers would sacrifice their children to this god for like luck or, so it was brutal. Do you know what time period this was? Um, like roughly the biblical era a couple thousand years ago yeah. yeah um i should have done a little bit more research before i came and talked about this but so moloch is the ultimate personification of the finite game because i believe that animating spirit is the byproduct of our collective repressed war trauma so moloch is the thing that animates the military industrial complex and everything that feeds it and is connected to it. Moloch oversees every country's military industrial complex. Moloch is an organizing story that says, it's either me or you, and I'm going to win. Because if I don't, it, it means death. I'll do whatever I need to do to protect myself. It's, I am not connected to the rest of the world. I have to protect myself from the rest of the world. 
I can kill you and I'm not harming a part of me because you and I are not, are not protected. I'm afraid, I'm vigilant, and what I need is control in order to feel safe. Like, that's our, that's our king right now. Like, if you look at the way the world moves, that's our king. He's got some close advisors. One of his advisors is Midas. You could think of that as like whatever the energy is between Midas's touch, where he wants to turn everything to gold, but now he can't eat food and he starves and he dies. This is like the lieutenant general of King Moloch is Midas. Right underneath Midas, I don't have a name for her yet, but it's like a pseudo Aphrodite god that basically tells us it's consumerism. It tells us nothing that is wrong with you is your fault. You didn't do anything. You were just born this way. There's no God, by the way. So it's just the way your genes happen to unfold. We have the pills for you. And by the way, 90% of the commercials that you will ever see on TV or your phone I'm just reminding you how broken you are and we have the things to help you, but it's not because you're growing up in a sick culture and it's not because you're ignoring the call inside of you to be what it is that you came here to be. It's just because your genes are the way that they are and you're just born this way. But the thing that like allows those two stories of like make money, even if it kills everything and uh, you're broken, you're broken, you're broken, and only we can fix you. What, a, what allows for that to do is this deep sense that we're in the finite game, that the game ends when you die, and that you have to get yours, and if you don't get yours, like, if other people get success, it's directly taken away from you, et cetera, et cetera. So I don't think it's a conspiracy to make us stupid because i think everyone's caught in it anyone who would conspire is in the finite game and so they didn't conspire themselves into the finite game i think there's a larger like um it's it's in the zeitgeist like the unconscious all these stories and energies live in the unconscious the archetypal dimensions that it's there's no there's no evil they at the top it's the very energy that the people in power and the leaders of our society are possessed by yeah 100 percent And so, like, one of the deep life tasks for each of us is to remember the truth of the infinite game. Like, here's something that I haven't talked about on a podcast yet, and we'll see where this wants to land. My entire life, I've been convinced that reincarnation, at best, is a metaphor. And anyone who's talking about past lives and shit, I just roll my eyes to the point where the tendons almost rip out of my eye sockets. And then I read um, a book called Life Before Life, which is there's uh, two generations of researchers that have been studying physical evidence of reincarnation at the University of Virginia, I believe. And they have a very strict set of standards that somebody's uh, stories has to meet in order for them to qualify as evidence. They've interviewed... Uh, thousands and thousands of families, and they've accumulated close to 3,000 reports that fit their strict criteria that to them counts as evidence. And they've been growing this 
the database of all of these stories. Just to give you an idea of what they do, if a parent is reporting that a child is remembering something from their past life, the researchers will, um, whatever the child claims, they'll, they'll go do research about like who that person was, what, did, what was their occupation, how many children did they have when they were adults. And they'll come up with all these questions. They'll give those questions to the parents to read to the child, but the parents don't get the answer. So there's no unconscious bias coming from the researchers when they interview the children. And then the parents give back the answers to the researchers. And if the child meets a minimum viable threshold of like, this is above chance, the answers that they're giving, then they'll go interview the child and they'll do, you know, and they'll, the stories in that book, life before life to the skeptic in me was like, oh my God, I have to rethink my entire stance on reincarnation. And I can feel that changing my opinion about reincarnation would change my entire world because ultimately, even though I've, you know, I fucking, I've snorted the Vilka and I've drank the ayahuasca and I've, you know, just taken points of MDMA and feel like I've met God. My operating system is still mostly in the finite game. I'm able to like linguistically and cognitively get myself into the infinite game at times but I very rarely am somatically in the infinite game because to be somatically in the infinite game is this like, it's to viscerally feel not as a metaphor, but that you and I are a part of a massive infinite invitation to all the souls alive to continue to play. You know, I'm, I'm rarely there. Mm. I forgot what I was talking about. This reincarnation in oh, world right. view. Yeah. That like it's very poetic what you just said. I was just sitting with it as well. Yeah. It the image that came to mind as I read this book, because I read the majority on of this book on a airplane flight. And I started it when the plane took off. I read it the whole time I was in the air. And as we were landing and I put the book down, I like had a vision of like I saw Troy and I saw the Trojan horse being brought in through the gates, knowing that the um, swordsmen are waiting in there to sack Troy at night. And I was like, my psyche is Troy. And reincarnation just got through my defenses and now it's inside of me. They haven't come out yet. But I can feel that that idea got through the membrane of my protectors, my worldview. And that like, if you actually incorporate reincarnation as a part of you, I'll just speak for me. I can feel that if I incorporated reincarnation as actually a part of my worldview, I'm afraid of how it would make me behave what is that it's like how much of your life are you living the way that you're living it because you believe that when you die it's over you know like what is a legacy to an infinite player who actually reincarnates like what is a 
sacrifice in this lifetime if you know that you're going to reincarnate? Like, I think I would be braver to the point that it would scare me and I would be more selfless to the point that would terrify me. But it's like, man, reading that book really was like, like one example is there was a girl. So a couple of things that this study has found is that the average length of reincarnation is a soul will pass or whatever will pass. A person will die. And then they don't come back for about one lifetime. And then after about 80 years on average, they'll come back or at least a child will emerge who is not biologically linked to the previous child or a human and will start to report around age two or three. Like, I used to be a man and I was a cop. You know, and parents are just kind of like, okay, sweetie, yeah, you know, and just assume that they like saw a movie and that they're just like playing. This one girl um, reported that she was like an actor in her past life and that like it was roughly around 80 years ago. And so because it was an actor, they were able to do a bunch of research, but it wasn't like a famous actor. It was a very obscure actor. Mm. And they found something like 25 different relationships to that actor and their names. So like mom, dad, husband, son, uh, like uh, agent, like coworker, like found 25 people. Um, and then asked the girl um, who, so they would ask um, what was the name of your mom? And she would give the name. She got 23 out of 25 of the names right and what their proper relationship was. Wow. And that's just one of dozens of stories that they give in this book. And it's like, um, I, I haven't gotten to the part in the book where they talk about scars. And scars is the really wild shit where people, where children will talk about like, yeah, in my past life, what killed me is I got shot in the, in the hip. And they will sometimes have a scar at that part in the hip. And then when the researchers go back and try to find that person, they will find that like, oh, this cop died and they were shot literally in the same fucking spot. My bullshit detector did not go off when I read this book. I have a pretty strong bullshit detector. And um, so anyways, I bring all of this up to like anchor into like the worldview that I grew out of couldn't like it was the finite game god is dead if if it can't be proven scientifically it's not real so poetry the you know it's a fucking waste of time like go make your money get as much power as you can and you know have the fun that you can have before you die but while you do it shut the fuck up pretend everything is okay go into debt and lie about the fact that you still have desires for people even though you got married just shut up you know and that's kind of like there's something about believing that death is the end that makes us accept 
the shitty invitation that we've gotten from culture about how culture would like us to be. Our duty to culture is to update it, is to help it evolve. The duty, our duty is not to make the status quo stay the same. Because a culture that stops evolving stultifies and becomes tyrannical. It's just, it's like a law of nature. Like as soon as a plant or an animal stops adapting, it starts to decay. It starts to die. Uh, we are not helping our culture by listening to the invitation of our culture to not question culture. You know, like the true culture wants artists. It doesn't want I'm trying to think of what the right example would be. Like, it's almost like a kid where it's like the deep intelligence of the child wants to be challenged, but the child is going to throw a tantrum and try to get its way now. Culture is kind of like that. It thinks it wants you to just follow the status quo, but like the living, like, prima materia in the core of culture wants artists. Because the only thing that's ever created culture are artists. And the only thing that will ever evolve culture are artists. And the essence of art is the infinite game. But the culture is trying to destroy the artists from the very get-go, right? Yeah, you know, the, so just having this insight now, check this out. If we're honest with ourselves, what the artist is to culture is what our inner whisper is to our ego. And if we're being honest, we're, we've been trying to snuff out that whisper for most of our life. Why? Because it scares us. But the real fun of your life starts when you start to stoke the flame of that whisper. The one thing the flame will do is it will burn your fucking house down. Like whatever structure you have that you hide inside that you call your personality and your ego you start to listen to that whisper inside of you, it will burn that motherfucker down. And it's not until after it burns us down and we go through our dark night of the soul and then we come into like a higher point of view for all of life and ourselves, can we say, oh my God, I loved that. I want more of that. Wow, thank you. When the ember first came in, we were like, Fuck you. And I think that that's what culture does to the artists inside of each of us. I feel like it's cyclical too. Like as soon as you, because I've gone through multiple of those whispers calling me into a different experience and having to let go of an entire personality structure that I built up that I thought would bring me fulfillment, happiness, success, and then letting it go and finding this, this freedom and then a new whisper kind of takes shape and calls me into something. And then maybe that's not exactly what it is. Yeah. calling for it to break down. Break down the, the whisper, the ego, just for people that maybe don't have a oh, deep understanding. Because sure. yeah, yeah. I know that's something that you really beautifully, eloquently cool. can, can shape. Yeah. So most people, unless they've started to get into psychology or spirituality, when they think of their mind, they think it's just one thing. You know, it's just like, no, I'm me. What the fuck are you talking about a whisper? Like, no, it's just, a, it's just I think in my head. That's levels, that's a white belt. And most people don't even have the understanding of the, they identify so point. much with their thoughts. Right. Okay. So most like, people don't even know what we would be talking about if we talk about like mind. So they're not even going to jujitsu class. White belt is it's like, okay, I have a mind, but like 
what are, what the fuck are all these other parts that you're talking about? So you have a conscious mind and your conscious mind is whatever you're able to think or comprehend in this present moment. You have a subconscious mind. Your subconscious mind is anything that you at will could make conscious, but it's currently not conscious right now. So if I asked you, um, like, when's the last time you had sex? You, you weren't thinking about that. That wasn't in your conscious mind until I asked you, and then you retrieved it. Mm -hmm. So there's a type of mind where you have access to things at will, but you're currently not having that in your conscious memory mind. Memory would fall into this. Right. Yeah. Some memory. Some memory. This is where it gets interesting. So um, now you have an unconscious mind. And an unconscious is things that could be made conscious, but you don't have will to it. You can't get to it by will. So this is where like dreams come from. A dream is a piece of content that has been created by some part of you that arises in you that can teach you things that you didn't know you knew. Like, Dreams are one of those things that if we actually stopped and look at what a dream is, it would, it would shake us because you're unconscious when you're sleeping. You don't even have a conscious experience. It's just nothing. And then out of that nothingness, you just find yourself in an experience that is indistinguishably real that 99.99% of all the dreams that you've ever had, you didn't notice that it was a dream while it was happening. So there is something inside of you that is so powerful. It is, it is able to recreate reality so clearly that you can't notice. Like you have to fucking train yourself to be able to notice. Like that's how good this thing is. And that your dreams at times can reveal things to you that you wake up with a sense of having just learned something. So that just starts to give you a little bit of an insight and you are not alone in the house of your psyche. Your conscious mind is a motherfucker on the front porch who thinks he has the keys to the whole house. But it is a mansion and there are hundreds of rooms. And every room has a monster or a demon or an angel or a god or a new idea that would change the world. The part that whispers. So this is, I'm going to bring in a little bit of technicality that I think would, it's just true. So um, in cognitive psychology, there is this idea called combinatory explosion. And it is a mathematical model for the amount of things that consciousness could like comprehend in the present moment, like the numbers of things that you could attend to in this room right now is millions and millions and millions. So every stitch on the cloth behind you is something you could pay attention to. Every fucking shade of light on this microphone is something you could pay attention to. Every piece of hair on either of our beards are something that you could, like it could just call out to you, but you're currently not paying attention to any of that shit unless I talk about it. 
there is something in your consciousness that is performing a function that if we combined all the computers on the planet to do, it couldn't do. Because we don't currently know what type of formula a computer would have to run to be able to process all this information. There is something effortlessly noticing what is most relevant to your, whatever it is you are. There's something organizing your experience and revealing to you out of everything that you could possibly pay attention to in this present moment, which is practically infinite. Here's what we think is interesting to you. Here's what we think you would want. And it's really good. You know, like if you're like anyone who has ever gone to a festival, if you set the intention to find your friend, even though you don't have phones, almost everyone has a story of a miracle. That's kind of a crude example of like every person at the festival is a potential set of a thousand things that you could pay attention to in this moment. And there's something guiding you through all of that fucking chaos and bringing you to what's meaningful. The whisper is that, but it's in relationship to your potential. So Carl Jung talks about this whisper and he talks about the daemon and the metaphor he uses is the oak tree and the acorn. What he talks about is in the acorn, there is a, like a soul image. There is some type of intelligence in the acorn that knows that it's meant to become an oak tree. There's something in the acorn that knows we're going to destroy the acorn. The acorn is going to fucking not be here by the end of this process. Each of us is born with an inner soul image of what, we're, of what wants to come through us. And it's way bigger than what we are. It is the oak and the acorn. Our ego is the acorn shell. And that whisper, until you, you said before we got on air that you have to earn faith. And I love that. You have to earn a trust with this force because it's going to feel like it's trying to kill you. Like you will have moments where you feel like you are dying. And like, you know, the mythic message of Jesus is not, I literally died and I literally came back to life and then went to a heaven that's off planet because we're actually so deeply disassociated from the earth that we had to create a trinity of all men who live off planet. Maybe it's a metaphor. And the metaphor is that you can die and be reborn. That the Christ energy in you can be immaculately conceived in you. That you don't need anyone else to do it for you. Maybe that can unlock some codes and I can feel that I'm going. So anyways, your question is the whisper. Yeah. So we can get back on Jesus. I love that. (laughs) (laughs) Let's go. Yeah. So that's a little introduction into like you have different parts in you and the whisper is one of the parts. So the God Hermes is regarded as the messenger God. That was the only God that was allowed to go to Olympus and to the earth and to Hades and could go between all three. Because the rules of Hades is that if you come in here, you can't leave. Or at least nothing that can go to Earth can go to Hades and then never come back. So Hermes was special. He was the messenger of God, and he was able to move between all the worlds. That whisper in you is like your inner Hermes. Your unconscious is Hades. Your like conscious mind is you know the Earth, 
And Olympus is like where all the fucking magnificent ideas come through. Like, I hope that everyone listening has had at least one moment of like epiphany that comes through so good that they get a full body goosebumps and it's better than coming. That's one of my favorite experiences in life is the like felt sense of a meaningful epiphany. And that's like a metaphoric, metaphorical aspect of that would be that's the whisper bringing something from Olympus down to earth into your conscious mind. Mm, it's beautiful. My question coming up is, is, is understanding all this, like you've been on this path learning about the psyche, Carl Jung, studying this stuff and the metaphor and all these different mythologies. Uh, and then this new Trojan horse of reincarnation, like how does that play into, because even doing all the psychedelics and connecting with God and understanding there's a deeper whisper that is greater than the self, but still super skeptical about reincarnation. I mean, is that, if you widen the lens out, is there an energetic soul aspect of ourselves that continues to choose to come back into this experience? Because it's almost like a greater acorn and oak tree experience that has multiple experiences to get even to like a greater level of consciousness? Yeah. So, uh, first, I don't know. And man, I wish more people who talk about this type of shit would just preface with, I don't know, because then you can just share from what I think. There's a lot of people that talk like they know. And the truth is, is it's like, there's this really interesting, there's a certain level of philosophy philosophical study that one can get to where you can start to make contact with like there becomes two types of people there's the people who don't know that they can't know anything that they say they know and then there's the people who know that they can't say they know what they say they know but they choose to be artists and have strong beliefs Like there's a point that you can get to in philosophy where at least it feels like I've gotten there. And so there's like a club and the club is, Hey, I actually don't, I know that I can't know anything objective because I'm constrained by this thing. But here's what I think. And they say it with like a twinkle in their eye. So I hope I can convey the twinkle. So here's what I think. It's not even, this is actually not even what I think. This is what I want to be true. So I'm just going to tell you what I want to be true. Is that, um, have you heard me tell the story of the myth of Ur? I don't believe so. All right. So Plato, the Greek philosopher who is regarded as the father and one of the like top philosophers of all time. I forget who said it, but someone said that all of philosophy are footnotes to Plato and Aristotle. And I was like, damn, that's a good quote. And he just like bodied a hundred of the smartest people of all time in a fucking like uh, 12 word sentence. That's pretty cool. Anyways, um, Plato, his magnum opus was this book called The Republic. And it was his attempt to articulate how to construct like a perfect state. How do you create the ideal culture? Um, At the very end of that book, he throws in a myth that seems kind of disjointed from the fact that the rest of the book was like a a work of philosophy. And at the end, this myth is called the myth of Ur. The myth of Ur goes like this. 
there was a warrior who died in battle and the gods saw that he was virtuous and just and so they agreed to let him see what happens after you die but that he would have to come back and tell everybody what happened in the rest of his life he would basically be like a priest or a preacher to tell this gospel so he dies and um his soul then goes to this in-between world where there's two judges on thrones and to the right of the judges there's two like staircases and to the left of the judges there's two more staircases and souls are coming in and out of these staircases to come fill up this room what he discovered was that uh the two staircases on the right we're going back and forth between this in-between world and heaven. And the two staircases on the left were going back and forth between this middle world and the lower world, which was like where we exist now. Their version of heaven was not the Christian heaven, but it's just, it's, it's a place where souls can live a lifetime of thousands of years long and there's no suffering. It's just kind of like play and yummy. What the judges judge is whether or not a soul has to acquire more wisdom. And so what happens is that people who go down to the lower world accumulate wisdom. And people who spend lifetimes in the upper world, they forget their wisdom because there's, there's no need to use it. Because mm. there, there, you, you can't do anything wrong, so there's no need for the wisdom. Any cycle of souls that are chosen as having to go acquire more wisdom they all kind of go into a little grotto that's outside of this hall where they get judged and then they go on a 10-day pilgrimage into an undescribed terrain they eventually arrive at a place on the 10th day where they can see on the horizon that there's a huge rainbow light beam going from heaven down into the horizon and the way it's written it goes all the way down to earth so it's like it's like a rainbow bridge that goes through all three worlds so they travel for one more day and they get to this rainbow column embedded in the rainbow column is the mother of fate she's a huge goddess and she's on a throne and behind her are three of her daughters they're three of the daughters of like they're three of the muses of fate there's nine muses total and there's this huge machine thing that's like in front of them that's like i actually read what plato wrote and i couldn't fucking picture what he was articulating but the essence is it's like it's this incredibly sophisticated geometric spherical thing that that spins and has all these like loops in it and it produces golden threads the idea is like this is the structure of the universe and each generation of souls it produces what type of fates need to be brought into the vast unfolding of the universe so these souls line up and they get to pick their fate the way the story goes is the first soul was a soul that spent multiple lifetimes in the upper world so it just forgot all of its wisdom it grabs the first fate strand that it sees that has like maximum pleasure maximum money and maximum power the one rule about the fates is that once you pick a fate you can't give it back you have to live it out he didn't take the time to appreciate that at the end of that life his enemies would kidnap his children 
butcher them and hide them inside of a feast that they would feed to him. And he would end up eating his children and then being killed afterwards. He didn't take the time to look. And that's actually a lifetime that won't accumulate much wisdom because there wasn't much hardship. The very last soul to pick a fate in this congregation that Ur was in was um, Odysseus from the Odyssey. And anyone who has read Homer's The Odyssey, Odysseus acquired a lot of wisdom, went through a lot of hardship. So he took his time to pick between the fates that were still available, and he picked a lifetime of being a farmer, having a simple life, healthy children, and just spending his days like smoking a tobacco pipe on his porch. Once, once all the souls picked their fates, um, they had to then go into, they had to walk into a cave that was underneath the throne to get to the river of forgetting. And there's a Greek name for it, I can't remember. And they drink from the river of forgetting because the weight of their fate is too heavy to bring into a body. Once they've sufficiently drink from the river of forgetting, the mother of fate gives them a guardian spirit that remembers their fate that will travel with them through life. That's where we get the word daemon from. That's the introduction of the word to kind of like Western cultures through this story. I think some version of that is true. I choose to believe that some version of that is true. And that it feels like, I'm going to see if I can make this make sense because it doesn't make much sense to me, but I've talked about it a few times and it's worked. But it's something like, I think the, I think what the universe is doing is it's trying to bring things into coherence to produce emergence. So coherence and emergence are um, scientific terms that like start to kind of like let a little bit of magic come into science, but we give it a term and so we can just pretend like it's not magic. So coherence are when two things of like nature, um, like connect with each other in such a way where it can produce a new phenomenon that none of the previous things were on their own. So this is, this is made more clear through examples. When atoms get into proper coherence with each other, they then turn into molecules. When molecules get into coherence with each other, they can produce tissue. Once tissue gets into coherence with each other, it can produce an organ. Once organs get into coherence with each other, they can produce a conscious human. What happens when conscious humans get into coherence with each other at the proper scale to produce the next thing above what it means to be a human? What are humans equivalent to that the cell is to my conscious experience of talking about a cell? I think the organism waiting to be born that will require enough humans enough humans to get into coherence like the cells in our body do so it would take billions to get into proper coherence that the thing that it would produce would be whatever we mean when we say the word humanity i don't think we've ever seen the phenomenon of humanity we can intuit that it's possible but we've never seen it and so i think the face of god is a mosaic it's waiting in the future. The face of God is really the face of Gaia awakened. 
whatever the face of this Gaia God is, it it's going to require humans to get into coherence with each other at the scale of billions. And then I think a thing just happens, just in the same way that two atoms come together and we don't really know at one, and there's just, we have a molecule. And now the molecule becomes a tissue. It's just like a bloop. It's just a higher order thing. So I think in order for us to give birth to this Gaia God, um, each of us have to bring forth our inner oak tree and that you get put back in the game as many times as needs to be done for that thing to happen. And the thing that's interesting is it feels like culture allows for the remembrance of your, like, Da Vinci's brought forth his oak tree. The fact that we have culture and history allows us to remember the echoes of his expression. If we lost culture, maybe all those souls have to come back and do it again. You know, it's like we are actively trying to paint the mosaic face of the God that's trying to emerge through us as humanity. But it's like, it's like, it's, it's a collective project. I think that's what we're doing. Wow. Uh -oh. And so we're facing this kind of existential threat to our culture. And if right. it falls apart, the idea is that the consciousness or the souls that weren't unable, potentially unable to make it happen, have to come back and try again. The, the thing about... My story that I'm completely making up again, I just want to make that super clear, I'm just making this shit up, is I think the game is more intrinsically woven into the earth and into like whatever the earth is. So I think if we fuck it up to the point where we destroy earth, the game's over. At least the game as any of us understand it. Like, I think planets are trying to wake up in the same way that humans are trying to wake up. And that the planets, like, the radical difference between our children is akin to the radical difference between planets. I think the game as we understand it, like, one of the things that I think is really hard to appreciate is... Um, Based off of what we understand about evolution, which I, you know, offer, there might be asterisks and there's a lot of like spiritual understanding that hasn't gotten into classic evolutionary theory. But based off what we know about evolutionary theory, the chances of an organism evolving on some other planet that would have a type of consciousness that would be anything resembling what we could even comprehend is really low. And so what I mean by that is like, all of our emotions are a byproduct of how we have evolved on this planet. Like what anger means, how anger feels, where anger is generated in the body and what behavior behaviors anger generates is the byproduct of this body evolving on this planet. Like it's, it's hard to linguistically get people there, but like fear is not a universal emotion. Fear and like how fear is generated in your body is based off of our evolutionary history on this planet. What fear even fucking means or feels like or prompts us to do is because of our evolution on this planet. 
who's to say that there even be like emotions of creatures on some other planet. So there's a long way of me saying, um, I think the game could end if we fuck up the whole planet, but I think that we would have to really miss the mark to fuck up the whole planet. Yeah. And it seems like there is momentum for a collective awakening happening. I agree. And, you know, it's funny. I just, I go back to, you know, the, the how, how do we do this? How do we come into coherence? How do we, you know, and there's all these nuances and complexities that we can talk about. And obviously there's a lot to process in the story that you just shared and the daemon and the soul and the oak tree. And it can all feel very overwhelming for people to be like, well, how do I, how mm-hmm. do, like, I see where the world's at. I want to make a difference. How do I do that? And, you know, on the journey that I've gone on and done all the work and seeking and trying to find the answer, I find it so beautifully poetic that you know, circling back to how we started this conversation to come into coherence ourself is through the simple power of the breath. And if we can teach people at scale to, to breathe, which expands into understanding how to regulate your nervous system and how fear shows up in the body and how when fear shows up in the body, it creates a story in the mind that I'm not safe or I need to protect myself, which creates all these kind of the zeitgeist stuff you were talking about as well. So it's, it really is as simple as learning to breathe and learning to regulate yourself and being able to slow down and listen. And it seems like the counter to that is our world is becoming more distracted, more disconnected, you know, just, it's really fascinating. Even someone like myself, like I'm, I'm aware, I have the discipline to practice the tools. And I was, you know, I, I shared earlier how I'm going through this, this deep excavation of self and this, this ego death in my own life right now. And I'm going through this process of, really journaling and excavating. And one of the things I am being very conscious and deliberate about is not going to my normal coping mechanisms, the normal ways I distract myself from the feelings that I'm feeling. And this is by no means an exhaustive list, but I quickly came up with 15 things that I use on a daily basis to distract myself from the present moment. And so someone that is, you know, self-proclaimed aware and kind of on this path, and I struggle with this stuff so much, yeah. It's like, what do we, what do we do? How do we move forward? Yeah. There's a couple of things that come up. One is, um, if you, if you think that you are aware to the point where you're not somewhere, um, either where Joe's at or far worse, just have the discipline to run the experiment to do Vipassana for a week and you will learn very quickly that the thing that is so incredibly humbling about Vipassana meditation is that if you actually can get still and choose to keep your awareness on the movement of your exhale and inhale at the tip of your nose, you will notice within a minute that you can't go three seconds without getting lost in thought for a moment. And the practice of Vipassana is to be able to notice when you're thinking without realizing that you're thinking. And then just come back to whatever the task is. The vast majority of our lives, even if you're like, there's an interesting scale. There's the people who don't know that they're unconscious all day. And then there's the people who have just enough awareness to believe that they're aware because they've, they've had a couple of moments 
but they get to see like, oh my God, like if I'm, I might have a genuine aware moment once every three days. And like, I know what it feels like to like come into the moment and be like, I haven't been here in three days. Holy shit. Mm. You know, but, um, I could go down that rabbit hole, but if I came out of the rabbit hole and I answered your question, the thing that I recommend and like, I think people should in the same way that there's 12 fucking Zodiacs, I think there's multiple ways for people to kind of like start their journey of waking up and breath. If it works, do breath. What worked for me because I'm highly linguistic is journaling. So for me, the real simple recommendation to everybody here is get a journal and pick a time and a place where every day you sit down for 20 minutes, set a timer. If you like to be ritualistic, light a fucking candle and practice saying uncomfortable truths. Just practice being honest with yourself. And the truth is, there is no one listening to this podcast who doesn't have an unsaid truth to someone close to them, period. There's no one listening to this podcast that doesn't have something hiding in their shadow that if they were courageous, they could bring into the light through journaling, but they could not bring it through in being in the dialogue with anyone because it would be too charging. I think we feed the whisper most clearly by cultivating the capacity of our honesty. Like there's no one listening who hasn't had a conversation with someone in the past week where they've convinced themselves they weren't dishonest, but they know they left out key parts of what they said that they knew would make the other person upset. They just kept that part back and they pretend like they're honest. Before I started doing this practice, I... This practice helped me realize I lived my entire fucking life not knowing how to be honest, not knowing how to be honest with myself, not knowing how to be honest with anyone around me because every opportunity that I had to think I was doing it out loud with people in front of me. And as a teenager, you're constantly trying to get the people in front of you to like you. I realized that I hadn't been honest with my partner when I first started to do this for like a year. The truth is I'd fallen out of love with her. And she could feel it, but she couldn't articulate it. And I was hurting her because just every day, you know. So start to journal and cultivate the capacity to tell the truth. And as you start to tell the truth, you're going to hear that whisper start to perk up because that whisper is going to be like, oh God, he's paying attention. And then you're going to start to feel inclinations to say or do certain things that scare you. And I think the daily practice of writing out your truths and feeling into where you know you have something that you need to do or say to bring yourself more into alignment with your truth. That's step one. Step two is once a week, be kind to that little artistic child inside of you and take it out on a date. Both of these techniques come from the book, The Artist's Way. The Artist's Way, I think, is one of the most important, like, channeled texts that have been created in Western culture for modern-day people to revivify their soul in this zeitgeist genocide. Like, the truth is, you walk outside and you go into any Walmart, 
It doesn't have to be Walmart. It could be any major establishment where like the common person is moving. If you're honest with yourself, they look dead on the inside. There's multiple reasons for that. And most of the reasons are not their fault. But one of the most, okay, it's not their fault, but they have the capacity to start to feed the flame of their soul in them. And I want to tell a quick story that really highlights this for me. It's dramatic, but it's like this, this calls me out whenever I remember this story. Do you know who Viktor Frankl is? Yeah. Okay. Viktor Frankl is a um, psychotherapist who lived in Austria during World War II. He had the opportunity to get out of Austria and get a visa to come work in America because he was a well-established, you know, like intellectual. But he couldn't get visas for his parents. So he was struggling about whether or not to leave. He decided to go visit his parents. And when he walked into the house on the kitchen counter was a slab of marble. And his dad told him that uh, his dad had rescued this from the nearby temple that the Nazis had, dest had destroyed. And the part that he brought home was one of the parts of the Ten Commandments. And the commandment that was etched on the marble was the commandment of um, honor thy mother and thy father so they may prosper on this land. And he saw that as a sign to stay. And a couple of months later, him, his brother, his wife, and his parents were abducted. All of his family members were killed in the gas chambers or in the prison camps. And he went to Auschwitz amongst some other prisons. He endured Auschwitz because he had the vision that he wanted to teach the world the atrocities that happened here. And he would imagine himself in front of lecture halls all over the world telling a, a new generation of young adults what can happen. And uh, the result of him having gone to Auschwitz is that he wrote Man's Search for Meaning. Man's Search of Meaning is one of the most important books written in Western culture, I believe. And the most famous line from that book is in, in response to um, that there was a thing that would happen in Auschwitz where some of the prisoners would give up. And when they gave up, the way that they would give up is they would refuse to go work that day. And if they refused to get up and go to work, they would be killed that day. And there were a certain group of men who, whenever they saw one of their friends give up, they would go up to them and they would give them their last piece of bread. You know, because like bread was one of the only ways that they would eat and food was scarce. And what Viktor Frankl saw in that moment is that there's a certain type of person who when they see someone else give up, they can do an action that not only feeds the person directly, but it feeds everyone there in their soul of like, if this person is willing to give up their last piece of bread to not leave this person behind, it gives them all hope and it, it keeps a person from dying. And he wrote that the last of the human freedoms is our ability to choose our attitude in any given situation. I think we are living in a type of 
cultural genocide moment that we really can't see unless we train our eyes to see it. Like the World Health Organization recently announced that over 300 million people are so depressed that they're disabled, that they can't work. Depression does not have a biological cause. And for anyone who is surprised by that, that, that myth has been debunked. It's now published in all the major news media and you can go Google it and it's there, but it was a lie by the marketing companies of the pharmaceuticals. What most people don't know is that depression has the same symptom list as grief. What happens to a person when a loved one dies? the way that they grieve is the same set of symptoms that comes up as depression. And what most people don't know is that there's a Bible that psychiatrists have to use if they want to get insurance for helping people. And it's called the Diagnostic and Statistic Manual. That book is on its fifth iteration. In the first iteration of this book, people were allowed a year after the death of a loved one to have these symptoms and they wouldn't be diagnosed with depression. By the fifth version, it's less than two weeks. That is a insult to the human soul. And I think what we don't recognize is that the death of a dream has the same effect on the psyche as the death of a loved one. And I think that that's kind of the essence of this podcast is it's like, how do you transition from the death of your first life into your new life? And I think the artist's way provides a vehicle to help us move through the death of our dream into the life of an artist. Because there's something about art that is like inherently hope producing. It is the person in Auschwitz who gives bread. You know, like the thing to really feel into is no one in the privacy of their own heart can look out at the world and think, it's good, it's okay. You know, all of us can feel in the privacy of our own heart that there's something deeply wrong. The act of creating art is a testament that you have hope. And like one of the things that I talk about is like, writing is not art. Writing can be art, but it, like, if you're a writer for a marketing company, for a pharmaceutical company, that's not art. Preparing coffee for your loved one can be art. It's the existential point of view that you believe that, yeah, even though life is full of fucking suffering, I can make it a little bit more beautiful. And ultimately, like, the thing to really feel into is that are you the type of person who would share bread in Auschwitz? And if not, you can become that type of person. And I think the artistic path is the way to, to bring that part out of you because people like, again, I think it's something a few hundred people a day kill themselves in our culture. There's mass shootings happening all the time. There's people ODing from pharmaceuticals every day. There's people who have basically died, but they're still alive and they have, you know, they're depressed or they're psychotic or they're schizophrenic or whatever. And um, I think it's imperative for anyone who feels the call to like cultivate the capacity to tell yourself the truth, 
cultivate the capacity to have the courage to be an artist again, because all of us were artists as children. And um, see how much bread you can actually make and how much bread you can share in this lifetime. <sighs> wow, bro. Got me, uh, I want to hit, I want to hit. I want to talk about grief because that was the first time I've heard, you know, the, the symptoms of depression are so closely correlated to unprocessed grief or the grieving process and in a society and culture that has never been taught to grieve, has never been given the safe space to grieve, to feel. and you know, in my own, my own process of, of letting go of everything I thought would give me fulfillment, happiness, and joy. You know, I had reached a point where I'd, I'd accomplished it all. I had more money than I, I, I could buy anything that I ever dreamed of as a kid. I was living my childhood dream and had it all. And there was still something missing within myself. And there was that whisper that came in towards the, like my last year of my career is like, you, you need to walk away from this. And I had no idea why. And it took a tremendous amount of courage to, to follow and listen and honor that voice in the face of everybody calling me crazy and telling me like, what are you doing? You're, you're giving it all up. And you know, like a week after my final game, there was a part of me that was excited to experience the freedom from this. It felt like a self-created prison. I was part of the thing. I wanted to break free. Like, who am I outside this thing? And like a week after my final game, the finality of that decision just overtook me. And the hollowness in my heart, it felt like I had ripped out my own heart. And it was outside my body and there was a void. And it felt like all this energy just got sucked into it and I just began grieving in, in a way that I, I don't know if I ever have before. Yeah. And I've experienced that grief a lot. I, I, since then, you know, I, I've learned to grieve. I've learned that grieving is a, an integral part. It's a needed aspect of healing. You cannot think your way to healing and to letting go and to trying to find the, the, the answer. It's, it's found within the depth of your grief. And in a society that is so sick and it's just, yeah, speak to the, the grieving process a little bit and the importance of that and how you know, I, I've said often that, you know, like 95% of like mental, emotional health issues in our society, like people just need to be seen, held, accepted, and given the space to really feel the depth of their, of their grief. Yeah, the grief thing is, um, it's huge. And it's like once you have the eyes to see it, you can see it everywhere. But a couple of things to feel into to kind of like set the stage for why it's such a big problem is that to be a finite creature that loves while living in an entropic universe will demand that the things that you love die. And that the flip side of love, it's not... Like they're in, they are the same thing. Love is what happens when we are able to connect to the object of our love in space time. Grief is what happens when the option to connect to it is gone. It's still love. It's love for the thing that isn't anymore. And grief is the other half of love. 
for life. There's a psychological term, I forget the name of it, but it's that um, to the degree that you blunt any negative emotion becomes the cap of how strongly you can feel any positive emotion. So if someone dies in your life, or if the dream of your life dies, to the degree that you've cut that off becomes the ceiling to which you can feel love and joy and bliss and happiness and freedom and abundance. Our culture is also in like a momentum of the denial of death. Like if you look at our movies and our like our modern myths or our movies and our books, you have almost no heroes who are elders. You know, like once women hit a certain age, they just, they can't get roles in movies anymore. There's a few that have gotten like a niche where they get to be in movies. And even with men, most men, once they hit a certain age, they don't get the opportunity to do movies anymore. I think that's a sign. The next thing that's really interesting is most of our hospitals, like I have such admiration for the humans who choose to work in hospitals. So the doctors and the nurses, I have less admiration for the administrators of hospitals, but hospital, most hospitals are fucking publicly traded companies and a publicly traded company has to maximize profit. And once, and the, the ethos of maximizing profit, that's the God of our time, Midas, that has that golden touch that kills the life in anything because it's trying to turn it all into money. Most hospitals look like prisons on the outside. Their architecture sucks. Most schools look like prisons too. Like from an architectural standpoint on the outside, it's like... Fences with barbed wire around them too. <laughs> like they're ugly. Mm. Like they don't call for beauty mm. and you would think that the place in our culture where people go to heal would have an aspect of beauty to them most people who are at the end of their life they don't get graceful hospice care they get put into a room where they're allowed to see almost no one you know because there's strict rules about like who's able to go visit when they're able to visit blah 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 the rooms are ugly they might have one window there's all these machines and most people will go into hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt to maintain a quality of life that is barely any quality of life for the last, you know, couple of weeks or months because there's this deep, like, denial of the fact that death is a part of life. You can see it in, like, the cultural, like, need for Botox and, like, um, like skin talks and all that stuff. Like we're just chronically trying to be as youthful as we can possibly be because we don't have, um, there's not a space for elders. So when you have a space where there's not many elders, one of the hardest parts of life gets, um, we don't get help and that's grief. And like grief is a annihilation you know, it's, it's like, it feels like you're dying. The thing that's really interesting is that most of us, most men have been taught not to cry. So they have like a deep somatic resistance to even the feeling of a cry emerging. And most women have been taught not to be angry. And so as soon as that starts to come up, they exile it and deny it. The, the two fundamental aspects of grief is like rage and weeping. 
Because one of the things that's really hard to admit is like most of us, if we're really honest with ourselves, if we could get to the core of our grief, we're mad at the person who died. Or we're mad at God. Like a lot of people actually have a resentment towards whatever the thing is that we use the word God to try to comprehend. And there's people who hate themselves because they're not the one who died. You know, like, and this could be like war stuff or like, you know, if there's two people who are both around the same age and one dies and they feel like they should have been the one who went. Um, I think denied grief kills us. And it's like, how do you, how can you get people to trust the fact that it's okay to feel like they're dying? You know, because that's what would happen if they would start to touch their grief. And I think that psychedelics are actually one of the, like, miracles that are starting to happen in our culture to help people start to touch this type of emotion. We talked about it at the beginning of the podcast. Breathwork is actually a super powerful way to get people to make contact with their grief. The thing that I would offer for people here who are interested in, like, a practical way to, like, look at their grief because you've got grief. If you have lived, you've made it to the point where you can listen to a podcast like this and even care, you've accumulated a lot of grief. There's a book called The Smell of Rain on Dust um, that's written by Martine Prechtel, and it's the best book that I've ever read on like practical stories that teach ways that you can start to grieve. And I would recommend that people get the audible version of this book because he reads it and you can feel just like the depth of his wisdom because he's an, he's an actual elder, you know? And it's like, there's, there's also a really interesting thing about grief that a lot of people in Western culture have a hard time connecting to. And it's that if you can accept and move through and feel fully your grief, you will actually find on the other side an intimacy with the dead one that was closer than the intimacy you had with them while you were alive which is a really hard thing for people to comprehend. But as soon as a person dies, like we don't know who someone is until they die. What I mean by that is like, you, you can't understand a story until you get to the last period on the last page. It's only once the story ends that the, that the book makes any sense to you. People's lives are like that. And it's like, once they, once they die, you then get the opportunity to actually be with who they are, like in the totality of their expression in this life. And that once they pass, you can start to cultivate an intimate relationship with them, with your own soul, through your own psyche. And it's like, if you learn how to cultivate your dream life, you will have dreams where you interact with the person who has passed that feels more real than any interaction you've ever had with them when they were alive. And I don't pretend to know what that is, but I see it over and over and over again. And that, um, it also, grief also does something where like, it reminds us of our bullshit, you know, like in a way that's deeply uncomfortable, like grief reminds us that we too will die. This is going to end dog. Like, why are you being such a coward? Why aren't you going for it? Why aren't you alive? 
You know, like there's the, I think it's Benjamin Franklin. He has a quote, or maybe it was um, Oscar Wilde, but it's um, most people uh, die their first time when they're 25 and then don't live again until they die the last time when they're 80. That there's like the death of the soul that happens early in our life. And it's because we have this vague feeling that we'll live forever. You know, like how many people have bought the story that was given to them by culture of like, give us your best years, work a job you hate because you have to. Like what most people in that space would say is I have to, I don't have any other option. If Viktor Frankl had another option, I know it might sound uncomfortable, but you do too. And there's something about the death of people that really like puts our bullshit self-restraint into the forefront of our mind. And like a, a classic story that we hear over and over again is, you know, person lives the life that culture taught them to live. And then they get a cancer to diagnosis within six months, they quit their job. They've started to do the thing they've always wanted to do. And they're, they're just fully free with everyone around them. They're telling the fucking truth and they're just doing what the fuck they want to do. And the cancer went into remission. Like, who here hasn't heard that story at least once? I think there's a there there. And so there's something about grief that if we were to actually let it into the house of our psyche, it would kill us too. Because it would remind us that we're going to die. Wow. Yeah, and circling back to the, the daemon, the whisper within ourselves that is going to try to kill us. And this isn't like grief isn't just about people in your life physically dying. It's stories of who you think you are that want to die. And the grief is akin to an aspect of self to fully let it die. You have to grieve the loss of it. And, you know, that's, and it takes time too. I mean, when I left football, it took me five years of deep grieving and a process and seeking. And it's interesting that you said when someone in your life dies and you participate actively in that grieving process, you're able to connect with them in a way that you couldn't fully when they were alive. And I feel that to be true with the aspects of myself that was a football player. Interesting. And as I've integrated that part through my grieving process, I can actually see from a higher purview who that aspect of myself was more fully than when I was actually in it. And it seems like we're going through, as we move through this paradigm shift collectively, the collective consciousness and zeitgeist, there needs to be this collective death and letting go of this old culture, this old story, this old narrative. And in that process, we need to, we, it's not just, hey, let's build a new system because it's needed. We actually have to go through a grieving process, both individually and collectively to let that story fully die so that the new can be birthed. There's two things that come up. One is that like, just to drive home the point of like how confused we are as a culture, um, the grief exemption from a depression diagnosis only applied to if someone close to you died. But we can have death of stories that are just as equally painful as the death of a loved one. And a really easy example would be You've been married for 12 years. You come home one day from work. It was a good day. You walk in and there's a note on the front 
desk that is from your wife. And she says, um, I want a divorce. I've been having an affair for the last three years. I'm in love with him and I'm pregnant and I'm leaving. The, the moment before you walked in to that house, you were on a whole timeline of your life. Things made sense. Your past made sense. And the moment you read that, your past breaks, your present breaks, and your future breaks. And it is as potent, or if not more, destabilizing than the death of your mom or the death of your wife. And that if you were to have symptoms of grief, you would be diagnosed with depression. And it's like, that's, that pisses me off. Like, that's so not the case. The other thing to offer is it's like, it feels like the collective grief of the death of our current cultural story is so big that it would kill a lot of people if by just its sheer weight. And that it's almost like it's the obligation of the people who can bear it to start to like actively create the stories that will serve as the bridge to a more beautiful world that people can start to get on. And then once they're moving towards that vision, they can start to cultivate the inner resources to begin to grieve what they're leaving. But it's like, um, in the Bible, when Exodus happened, you know, like, uh, that the people who fled from the Pharaoh being led by Moses, um, like if they didn't have the belief that God was with them and that they, they will make it to the next story, they wouldn't have survived the wasteland desert for 40 years. Like we need a story to make the passage from the old story and to survive the wasteland that will likely be at least a generation or two, you know, like not to go too far down some rabbit holes, but there's a lot of really smart people that think that the way energy is moving is it's like, there's going to be a wasteland that our children are going to have to go through and their children are probably going to have to go through. And it's like, one of the things that I struggle with is it's like, I could be wrong about all this, but it really feels like I see like the immensity of the task before us. And it's like, we're in this weird place where like Rome is burning, but if you know how to organize your life well enough, you can't smell the smoke. But it's like, it's, I feel like Rome is burning. And I think that like, I don't want a comfortable life. I don't want it to be easy. I want to give the best I can for as long as I can to put a little bit more bricks onto the bridge that will be for my kids' generation. Because it really feels like we're right at like a tipping point where we're able to be like, no, it's fine. You know, but it's like, I really feel like the problems that we're able to ignore a bit are going to be much hotter with more dense smoke by the time that my soon to be created children will be my age, you know? And so it's like, 
again, the reason why I go back to like, I think the way through is to really connect to what is your artistic process. Everyone's an artist. And anyone who says that they're not an artist is a blocked artist in denial who might be schizophrenic because it's like, motherfucker, do you talk? Art. Have you sent a text? Art. Have you been able to manifest a house and a car? Art. Have you built a company? Big art. You know, like we're artists. And most of us have um, prostituted out our artistic power to do things it doesn't want to do. And like the invitation is like reclaim an alignment with that inner process in you and build what your soul is asking you to build and trust that it's a part of the mosaic of the face of the God that's trying to come through the earth that will help us, you know, eventually get to the point where we can see what the fuck humanity actually is. It's like infusing that because we're all creators, right? That's what you're saying. It's right. infusing that creation with, with loving frequency and with the heart and being able to bring that and what is the art that you want to create? I mean, what is, what is your Damon calling you forth in creating and, and what does that look like? Because this has just been such a powerful conversation and I can feel the weight of it and the, yeah. the enormity. And the question is like how, you know, it's like, I love the, the metaphor of like laying that brick and that's all we can really do. And trusting in a way that it's going to be enough. There's a lot of us that feel called in some capacity to be a part of the change. And I mean, I, I love what you said. It's, it's, it's almost our responsibility for those of us that, that have developed the tools to carry the weight and to process and to grieve. Sometimes often when I go into like a deep plant medicine ceremony, I feel like I'm grieving for so much more than myself. There's yeah. this collective grief working through me. And I know there's some of us warriors that called into this time to, to, to serve that purpose and that role. And I'd love to hear just what your calling is and how you're going to show up and, yeah. and bring that art into the world. Yeah. The, there's a couple of things. One is, um, since I was a young man, Whenever I would hang out with one of my close friends, especially if we got into a deep conversation, if we did a podcast or if we did mushrooms together or whatever, what was most interesting to me was to try to identify through questions what their dharma is. Like, what is their sacred task to do in this life? And so I've always been deeply curious in trying to connect and see and resonate with the oak tree in people, like each person's individual oak tree. My artistic calling feels like I want to create a forest. Like I'm trying to erupt the oak tree inside of anyone around me who basically gives me permission to try to destroy their lives. You know, like I'm trying to make that thing come forth because I want to, I want to create a forest of people who are manifesting their oakness. And it's because I think it's the, it's the most effective revolutionary act I can do with my skill set in this time, because I don't think that our culture is okay. I think it is incredibly sick and I don't think the way to help it 
is to put vitriol and mockery and blame and hatred and projection out into the world like most people do who can feel that there's something wrong. Like one of the things to feel into is the king god of our time, at least in the way that I see it, that is leading the genocide of all of our personal gods is Moloch. And his energy, like he's fed by hatred. He's fed by a deep fear of the other. He's fed by win-loss dynamics of like, if that group gets any ground, we're losing. That thing is fed by bitterness and othering. And it's like most of the people who can feel that there's something wrong and they actually want to help, what they're actually feeding is the king God that's killing the world. And I think that the proper response to it is like, if you think something is wrong, make something, create something. And if you want to starve the gods that are currently leading this genocide, inspire, give hope, create things that revivify people's hope, create things that are beautiful, you know, create things that are true, create things that work, help people. And so what I'm currently most interested in is one, um, helping turn on artists to this force in them. And two, I feel like my whole life, I'm going to be trying to help people see gods, like what gods actually are like, Gods are not literal. And if you think that literal equals more true than what gods are, you're deeply confused and it's fucking up your life. So I'm trying to help people understand, like, it's a fucking weird coincidence that my last name is Godsey. Like, that's fucking crazy to me. But like, I started reading about mythology as a kid, like seven. And then, you know, puberty hit. I didn't read a book for fucking 12 years. It was just basketball and titties. And then when I started to read books again, I got into Carl Jung. And the Carl Jung code to understand the difference between a mythic symbol and anything that is literal has been one of the most important codes for my own sanity and for my growth. And it feels like that's an aspect of my artistic point of view that I'll be saying a thousand different ways for the rest of my life. It's like, yes, there are things that are literally true. That's not the same domain as mythological symbols. If you think that the only thing that matters is literal truth, one, you're a hypocrite. And I'll show you where you're, hip you're a hypocrite. I just have to talk to you for 10 minutes. Two, you're likely so confused that it's causing you a lot of pain in your life that you could alchemize if you just fucking would open up and understand what a mythological symbol is. And once you can start to think mythically and symbolically, you have access to so many tools through stories and myths that will help you in your human game of life more effectively than any motherfucking mathematical equation you could ever memorize.
Oh, God, dude. Carl Jung reincarnate, son. My man. Maybe. Maybe. Well, man, that was a freaking powerful conversation, and I'm really grateful for you. And, yeah, thank you so much for coming on the show and for creating your art and for showing up in this way. I know you've already impacted so many lives, mine included, and uh, really excited to be on this journey with you, brother. Thank you for the space for me to fucking just yap, yap, and yap for hours. And I really appreciate your courage to walk away from the dream and that you dedicated yourself to helping other people do that too. Cause I think, um, like it breaks my heart to feel the people who make it, but then allow it trying to stay there to fucking kill them, mm. especially in football, you know? So I just want to say thank you for your work. Thanks brother. Really appreciate that. Where can people find you if they want to stay connected with your work and what you're doing? Um, Instagram, my name, erigazzi.com or erigazzi. And then I have a website, erigazzi.com. And uh, that's it. Don't ever email me and don't ever DM me because I won't respond. I love you. (laughs) Uh Oh, and thank you all for tuning in, for listening. If you listening to this podcast and somebody popped into your awareness, some friend that you think would be inspired or this podcast conversation could impact them, Make sure you share it with them. That's really what this is all about is, is getting these, these conversations to the people that, you know, can really potentially just one story like you shared with the, the comedy show that you watched sparked something that led you on this path that led you here. And it's really just about, about that. And so uh, a great way to support this podcast is to leave a five-star review. I know there's a lot of people watching and listening and I don't have a ton of reviews. So make sure if you uh, get something out of this, take a few minutes to do that. It's really beneficial to the podcast. Don't forget to follow, subscribe wherever you're watching, listening, so you don't miss a future episode. I really appreciate y'all so much. Uh, thank you, Godzi, again. I'll talk to you guys soon. Peace. Peace.